Hi, this is Guy Odisha and Fran Beganek of the Bhakti Brain Health Clinic, and you're listening to the Neuro Noodle Network podcast. Thank you all for joining Neuro Noodles Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology podcast featuring our neuropsychologists, Dr. Laura Jansons and Dr. Skip Wren, and neurofeedback legend, Jay Gunkelman. This is an all-star cast that are more than happy to share their knowledge with you. You can find Dr. Laura at jansons.com. Dr. Skip can be found at drskipren.com. And Jay Gunkelman, well, there's only one Jay Gunkelman on Google. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. It really helps get the word out. If they can't hear us, we can't help them. My name is Pete, and today we're going to chat with Guy Odishaw and Fran. Help me out. Is it Beganic? Beganic. Okay. Beganic. Okay. We'll edit that in post, too. From the Bhakti Clinic in Minnesota. It's not the Bhakti Clinic now. It's the, what was that guy? The Bhakti Brain Health Clinic. Brain Health Clinic. Okay. In Minnesota. We had uh, neurofeedback tech guru John Anderson on the show a few weeks ago, and he suggested to bring on Guy and Fran. I can't wait to hear the show. Guy, Fran, thanks for coming on the show. Glad to be here. Good to be here. How do you guys know John? Okay, you're in Minnesota. What else? You share a wood chipper? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's North Dakota. Sorry, Jay. Yeah, that's Jay. I'll I'll just jump in for my side of it is, you know, I I got interested in neurofeedback probably about 20 years ago when I was at the University of Minnesota. They brought me on to set up an integrative clinic and we would do these workshops and I would bring in all kinds of professionals from the community to do... um, kind of alternative medicine uh, workshops for the conventional medicine providers at the U of M. And one of the people that came in was a neurofeedback practitioner. And I have to say that my love of technology and my love of healing came together in seeing what this equipment could do. And that was 20 years ago. And I was impressed. Of course, it doesn't compare to what it can do now. So that led me to John Anderson being, you know, one of the the main people uh, in, in the neurofeedback community here in the Twin Cities. So I reached out to John, started a conversation then about wanting to bring neurofeedback into the clinic at the U. And that really was this on and off again conversation over 20 years, as I would call John and say, hey, do you have anybody? And he would say no. And then I'd call him in a few years and say, do you have anybody? And he'd say no. And then eventually, Um, I decided if I can't find somebody, I'm just going to start doing it myself. And that's where Fran and I teamed up. I reached out to John and said, hey, John, I'm I'm not calling you to ask if you've got somebody for me. Uh, I'm calling to ask if you will uh, train us, mentor us. Thank goodness he said yes. You know, here we are about four years later. And uh, it's been a fantastic journey. But I now understand why for 20 years John said no when I asked him if he had anybody for us. I did not understand what it takes to become a neurofeedback provider. And, and now I, I appreciate that what I was asking for and why John would just laugh at me. Fran, how did you come into play? I brought my psychology practice to Guy's Wellness Center 
you know, I'd been, I'd been teaching for, for quite some time and had closed my psychology practice and then went on sabbatical and got refreshed. And instead of getting refreshed into teaching, I decided I wanted to go back into doing my therapy practice full time. Um, so brought my practice to, to Guy's clinic and Guy approached me and asked if I was interested in doing neurofeedback. Um, it, it kind of neuropsych is something that's always been an interest area of mine. And just for a variety of reasons, that's not the direction I chose to school in. So was super excited when guys said, hey, you want to do this? And that's kind of how we began this process of building the clinic. The wellness center that, that you have, like what makes it unique in, in Minnesota? Guy, you started it with, were you just addressing depression, anxiety, or how did it start? How did it evolve? Because it seems to me like it evolved into a holistic center. Am, am I off base? Uh, set me straight. Sure. You're, you're headed down the right path. So a couple of things. So I have the, the Bhakti Wellness Center. And then within the Bhakti Wellness Center, I, Fran and I have the Bhakti Brain Health Clinic. And then I have Bhakti acupuncture and Bhakti mental health and on and on and on. It can be confusing with all the different names. So I've been in practice for 30 years. 25 years ago, I was uh, more on the teaching side. And what would happen is I would have my students come back and talk about their experience trying to find work. Some were successful, most weren't. It happened after having thousands of students graduate, go out, struggle to make it um, work was I began to kind of keep a list of what are the things that help people be successful and what are the barriers. So then I started to design a business that would really optimize for success of the professional, right? Like how could I put in place kind of plug and play business solutions? Because most people failed on the business side. So how could I put it together this kind of plug and play at scale business solutions to help providers be successful, really regardless of their profession. Then in that process, uh, I was contacted by the University of Minnesota. they had heard about what I was doing. They wanted to start a clinic. They actually had a clinic, uh, the Riverside Clinic, that uh, they were doing, but it was not going well. It ultimately ended up failing. So they brought me in with the university's help. We could have built my model. We were very successful. The clinic still exists, even though I left many years ago. Um, what I decided to do was take that model out into the private sector to see, was it a viable model? Um, and so 15 years later, here's Bhakti, we're still around. Um, so I, I guess it's good enough to last for 15 years, but I don't know that it's viable. Um, so I, I will say, you know, at pre-pandemic, we had 30 providers so we had MDs, chiropractors, handful of mental health providers, uh, traditional Chinese medicine, body work, energy medicine, uh, hypnotherapy. So we had a, a large uh, integrative group. And we, we really spent time working together. Um, you know, one of my favorite teams was an acupuncturist, a nurse, uh, Fran as mental health provider, and one of our Reiki providers you know, all uh, working together with a patient to move them forward. Particularly happy making story for me is in that particular person's uh, outcomes. One of the, the more valuable ads was bringing in a Reiki practitioner and seeing what energy medicine could do to shift that person. So it's been fantastic, ha you know, working within an integrative clinic. But then, of course, my passion 
neurofeedback that has come into the clinic just really, you know, in the last four years and now seeing, uh, you know, the integration of, you know, feedback with things like functional neurology and chiropractic, acupuncture, herbs, mental health is a more common integration for neurofeedback, but bringing in these other ones has again, just grown my fascination with integrative care as a whole, and then seeing neurofeedback in this paradigm has been uh, just nothing short of amazing. So we have practitioners listening to this show. We have parents, we, uh, we have new technicians. And one of the headlines that popped up last week was uh, the NFL draft is tonight. So one of the quarterbacks that is going to be drafted pretty high tonight, Justin Fields, he announced that he had epilepsy. We did a show on epilepsy uh, last week. This week, we've seen pro football player, uh, Chicago Bear legend Steve McMichael come out to say that he had ALS. So he goes from being a 280-pound powerhouse now to 175 pounds. And ALS is in the spotlight. And we've never talked about ALS. For the practitioners and then for the newbies just hopping on the show, could we touch on that? Uh, maybe, Jay, could you start it out? Let us know what ALS is, and is there anything that neurofeedback can do, or what can you do to help with the symptoms of it? Because obviously there's no cure. Sure. Well, first of all, there's historically there's been no testing that could identify it either. However, recently they've looked at EG, QEG, and they find functional connectivity can actually predict the uh, nature of the physical loss. And, you know, the disease goes back. I mean, Lou Gehrig uh, was the first famous name associated with it, but then obviously Hawking's as well. You know, it's, it's a degenerative motor neuron disease. Now, it presents generally in two separate ways. One is the upper limbs, um, and, you know, you lose the ability to do fine motor control with the arms, uh, typically. Uh, the other one is, is is a bulbar, and there you lose the ability to speak and the ability to swallow. It, it's a progressive motor neuron uh, disease. Actually, it goes back quite a ways in neurofeedback. Um, it, it, back to the late 60s, early 70s, uh, Niels Burbomer at uh, Tübingen University in Germany uh, used slow cortical potential training to uh, work with brain-computer interface. He was the first one to do BCI, which is a popularized term now. And he taught the ALS patients, while they still could move, uh, how to use their brain uh, to to, uh, operate a computer instead of using their hands. And uh, at, at that point, um, he basically taught them how to operate uh, the, the X and Y uh, coordinates, and he could they could click on a letter or click on a word. Uh, they then eventually um, figured out that instead of just using the X and Y uh, coordinates with their brain, they could also use the P300 uh, speller. So you could actually look at a spot on the screen and it would type what you were looking at. Um, and the, all of that's actually advanced quite a long ways at this point. You can see Elon Musk using a brain-computer interface to teach a monkey how to play Pong with their brain only. And quite honestly, I think that monkey is pretty freaking good. I'd, I would hate to play Pong against that monkey. Um, 
with my hands, uh, much, much less, you know, brain. Um, but, you know, uh, ALS is a, uh, is kind of a brutal circumstance. You have about a two and a half year uh, from the time of diagnosis to the average length of your life. Now, there are, you know, there's a number of people that will make it out to, you know, five years or so, but um, it, it's a devastating progressive motor neuron disease. You can extend your life. The, the medication that they've come up with extends life expectancy by three months. Whoopee. You know, and it, it's got side effects too. So there isn't really an effective treatment. Um, uh, five to 10% of a, the, the ALS patients actually have it because of familial genetics. Uh, the rest of them have it from something else. Now, historically, they thought, well, it, it's smoking. And, you know, they've done a meta-analysis and smoking is a very, very weak association. Much stronger association. You have an 11 times higher probability of getting ALS if you've had traumatic brain injury. 11 times more common with a traumatic brain injury. Is that why vets get it more often? Uh, in fact, veterans, but also sports. Um, they did a, a, a study with um, soccer players. And you don't think of soccer players as head injury necessarily, unless you're a soccer player or a soccer fan. And, you know, headers are um, a rather uh, a significant blow to the head. Uh, so, and, and then once in a while, you just crack heads with people. But, uh, but uh, 26,000 soccer players, and they found a, a higher incidence in soccer players than the general population. So uh, TBI from sports is, is a, a very heavy um, uh, influence over it. Um, and, you know, again, there's some of them that is just familial. Uh, obviously the, the weakness and difficulty with speech and swallowing, but there's also pain, spasms in muscle and pain. And that, that, that's, uh, kind of under described really. Uh, it, it's a, it's a brutal aspect of the, of the disorder. Uh, I, I would suggest that, um, uh, the, the incidence of frontotemporal dementia in, uh, ALS is also, uh, really quite problematic. Uh, the uh, uh, frontotemporal dementia is seen in about 20% of the ALS patients. And frontotemporal dementia is is a, a loss of your personality, uh, uh, who you are, basically. And people's personality don't get better. Uh, they, nobody comes in complaining that, you know, grandpa got nice. Uh, the, 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 this is uh, people with a negative degeneration of their personality style and you know un unfortunately you know the the treatments are really not there now neurofeedback is uh, back into the 1970s but elon musk now has permission to implant not in not only in a in some people that have quadriplegic uh, changes but also als patients I think the problem with his approach at this point is that he intends to hook them up after they've become totally paralyzed. Neil Burbomer found that you could train them how to operate the computer when they still had some motor function. And 
uh, after they totally lost motor function, even the intention to move the arms was lost. And you have to have some, you know, Elon Musk basically can identify the movement that the monkey has and then program that without the actual movement, just program it with the brain activity. Well, if there's no intention to move and there's no movement, how are you going to train the computer to identify the movement that's not happening? So I think he's going to have some more difficulty with the ALS patients than he intends to have observations that have been made, you know, 50 years ago. So anyway. Jay, for, for the technicians out there, What's going to present on the brain map? Is there anything to say, oh, wow, this could be ALS? Um, the, 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 you'll be able to identify it with functional connectivity of the motor uh, neuron system. Uh, the, and you know, think, well, you know, go to the motor strip, or, you know, where the motor you know, outflow comes from. Uh, that's like telling me that the keys on a player piano is what's playing it. You know, uh, um, you, you've got to have a pianist, not just a keyboard. And the frontal lobe is the pianist that plays the motor strip keyboard. So um, the, the frontotemporal dementia is, is the loss of frontal uh, function and ALS is the loss of frontal regulation of motor outflow. And it's that functional connectivity that you can see in the EEG. Now, it's a fairly advanced technique to look at functional connectivity with EEG. It's not just looking, oh, look at that wiggly line. You know, there, there isn't any classical wiggly line pattern that you can say, oh, look at that. It's an ALS wave or something. This, this is something where you have to extract the uh, relationship between locations and how they're connected uh, using computer analysis of the EEG. Skip, you want to take the com? Yeah, sure. And that's where I was going to go. So thanks for answering that, Jay, on the uh, functional connectivity. It was definitely piqued my interest, but hopefully that trans translates up other, over to both our technicians and just folks at home. I was going to ask some folks, we were talking, uh, chatting here while you were chatting, Jay, with just comments and a guy had brought up if anybody had any effectiveness treating some of these issues or just maybe issues in general with uh, photobiomodulation devices. And I don't know that we've ever talked about those on the show in general. So if you're okay, guy, um, can I, can I pass this back to you and just have you maybe discuss those devices and, and how you guys use them up in Minnesota. And by the way, everybody's talking about their Minnesota connections. I spent my childhood in new Ulm, which is about 30 miles West of Mankato. If, Anybody knows about that town? Yeah, Shell's Beer. Shout out to Shell's Beer. Yes, yes. Right. Great. We got a, a couple of, of uh, Minnesota connections yeah. here yeah. this morning. Great. So photobiomodulation. Um, what did I say? I'm a fan. In particular, where it's come up, uh, for, so I'll just say we've used it orthopedically in the clinic for years. Maybe the primary reason there is inflammation. It seems to have a, a strong effect on the cytochrome C pathway for inflammation and reduction of pain transmission. And so it makes sense in an orthopedic way, pretty simple. For us, um, moving into using it in the uh, brain clinic, it, that's more of a novel addition to the clinic. We have uh, fewer clients doing it. So I have less to say kind of clinically there, but I've been following the research for a number of years, 
chatting with uh, Marvin Bierman, who's uh, been really deeply following this and, and has a product that he's bringing out, the, the infrared helmet, separate from the, the Violite that's been around for, for many, many years. Uh, this infrared helmet is, is new to the market. The idea of um, being able to change a number of kind of cascades happening on a, you know, a neurophysiological level of, you know, number one, stimulating uh, mitochondria, more ATP production, just putting more, just literally more uh, energy into the system and how that drives healing, uh, stimulating glial cells and astrocytes. So you've got a number of things happening there around, this is so, it's hard to, to generalize that so much science around each one of these aspects. So I'm going to speak just very, very generally here. Um, the sure. idea of of activating glial cells and astrocytes, um, two reasons. One, what they do in terms of cleaning up the environment and, and eating up the proteins that will ultimately break down myelin and form amyloid plaques. But not only do they do that in the sense of cleaning up uh, the materials we don't want, the byproduct of that uh, metabolism is to excrete the precursors for the building of myelin. So you, you've got a number of factors that are happening. And, and what, what we think with photobiomodulation is you're getting like an, an incremental uh, boost in, a, in multiple domains. And that's what equals kind of what the research is showing is some pretty significant findings in treating neurological conditions. I've spent most of my time looking at dementia and Alzheimer's. Um, uh, you know, some of the other ones, uh, ALS, uh, Parkinson's, um, have significant differences, but generally the roots are considered to be similar, which is you have an inflammatory process, have decreased circulation, uh, you have a buildup of catabolites, and, and that together uh, creates a toxic environment that leads to uh, the neurodegeneration. And photobiomodulation seems to check a lot of the boxes that can uh, address those pathological conditions that are happening and optimize some of the regenerative features. I'm and just, gonna, just to go try ahead. to clarify, myelin is the insulation, if you will, around around nerves and, and connections, right? It's, it would be similar to uh, an electrical wire. And so if, if your wire is insulated, it's going to conduct whatever it's trying to conduct. So myelin's a good thing. Lack of yes. myelin's a bad thing. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Myelin is a good thing for exactly the reasons you said. And then we, there's a, another effect that happens. So when, well, it can happen in a number of ways, but when the myelin starts to degrade, it, it looks like what happens is the, the brain will peg those neurons with a substance called complement. And when they've been tagged, then that, that tagging essentially sets them for removal. So not only is it a do you get a degradation in the electrical conductivity of the neurons um, where myelin is degrading, right? so they just function uh, poorly, but you also see those neurons get set for pruning. And so this is part of the expediting of the, the neurodegenerative loss. It isn't just c conduction velocities, it's the actual neuron itself getting pruned. So couple of, of things happening there um, around the myelin. For folks, real quick, for folks who might be interested in what you're talking about specifically, Guy, Seaburn Fisher was on and mentioned a book to us 
the angel and the assassin and it talks mm-hmm. about the microglia's role in doing exactly what you're talking about yes. on the assassin side and then on the angel side it has a way of supporting and helping those same organisms generate so good book out there um yes. anybody jay laura fran on photobiomodulation or or the bilite something tells me you know lou lynn uh jay but not to put you on the spot in fact, photobiomodulation is an emerging application, and it's got lots of interesting case support. Uh, there are some small studies, but usually they're quite small. Deserves some uh, funding for actual sizable studies at this point. Um, I, I work with a group in Korea, South Korea, obviously, um, in Seoul, a national university, but they've gone private as a, a business now. Uh, they collected a normative uh, database of EEG, but they've uh, developed a, a helmet that does EEG measurements with a dry sensor, with a, a fairly advanced dry sensor system. But they also have photobiomodulation at each of the electrode sites. And uh, they're placing a couple of those in some locations in Canada for me uh, to have some folks that are doing some research actually play around with the devices, uh, but they're busy going through the FDA process now. Um, uh, the, the FDA is generally allowing photobiomodulation as a, well, it doesn't seem to be able to do any harm, so go ahead and make it. Um, and, you know, that, uh, that, that that's okay, but you, you'd think that the FDA would actually look for some kind of a medical outcome, not just, well, you can't do any harm with it. So go ahead and do something with it, you know? So um, it's really quite promising for the dementias. One of the difficulties that is present in the small studies that have been done is that when you quit using it, it appears that Alzheimer's has a precipitous decline. Now, if you've been holding steady for a long time and not declining and you pull away the thing that's been holding you steady, you can kind of expect to revert to what you're going to be. That's a problematic outcome with a small study. It needs to be studied better with larger N and all of that, but it's a very promising emerging application in the neuromodulatory toolkit that people have for, you know, neurofeedback is one tool neuromodulation with devices is is another way to to change brain function um uh, I, I would urge people to uh, be open to uh, a, an experimental trial of photobiomodulation um it, again it doesn't seem to be able to do any harm and it does seem to be able to do some good devices themselves just so folks are be aware when, when we talk about the photobiomodulation helmet uh, it kind of looks like a helmet. It's something that you put on the top of your head and you turn it on, right? So from what I've seen, and that's in my practice, but also using it personally, um, other than positive benefits, virtually no negative side effects that I'm aware of, right? Certainly nobody's going out when they're sitting in the chair, you know? Correct. Um, you know, again, I've been pouring over the literature um, not only individual studies, but looking at meta studies and looking at the work of the people who this is um, their area of expertise, it seems clear that there are no uh, serious uh, adverse effects that have been recorded. And even the minor adverse effects that have been recorded are something as benign as a slight headache that 
diminishes within hours post-treatment. So it seems to be very, very safe. Um, what I, how I talk with my clients about this is, is think about nutrition or exercise as, as a model for considering something like photobiomodulation is it's a, it's a, it's a, a fairly minor nutrient, but when accessed on a regular basis over a period of time, you get a significant outcome, right? Just like exercising, you know, 30 minutes a day, every day in two days, not much has changed, right? You go like, Oh, this isn't working, but do that for a month, two months, three months, three years, and your life changes. And this is kind of the model where I put a lot of many of the neuromodulations into kind of more of that, you know, kind of nutrition or exercise model. This is a, a way to think about it. So everybody in Alaska is uh, vitamin D deficient. So it would be like taking D, taking extra doses of D for a couple of months, right? Right, but exactly. keeping up on them. Yeah, yep, okay. exactly that. Yep. I, just to kind of close up the discussion on uh, myelin diseases. I mean, there's certainly genetic um, roots that can destroy your myelin, but we start talking about the acquired uh, myelin diseases and you know, we talk about ALS, um, but there's also MS, multiple sclerosis, and th that's definitely a, a condition that can be affected by uh, loss of myelin. It's a, an inflammatory issue. Um, and as of now, I don't know that there's any known cause, but I was just going to ask just in general to everybody, what do you think is destroying the myelin? I don't know, Jay or anybody, if you have any guesses on kind of what is causing this, what, what's causing the inflammation in these folks? And you said um, brain injury, you know, certainly if you get hit in the head, I'm, I'm sure that's going to, you know, cause inflammation for sure. But I guess I, maybe the, the more specific question is, you know, do you think toxins are, are involved, uh, environmental toxins? Me and Skip are <clears throat> looking into, you know, the toxin, uh, the smog, the electro um, magnetic uh, smog from, you know, Wi-Fi signals and, 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 uh, electricity, things like that. Just wondering kind of uh, if Jay has any um, response on the, the root of the myelin disease, the acquired ones. Well, you end up with autoimmune issues that, that are attacking, but autoimmune is usually something that's triggered. Mm -hmm. uh, autoimmune doesn't generally just jump up out of nowhere. You know, uh, historically, uh, ALS, for instance, the exposure to lead is a very high correlation with ALS. Now, lead exposure is very high across a lot of things. You know, if you live, live in Flint, Michigan, uh, you're getting it from your water supply. Um, uh, but uh, the environmental toxins and triggers for the immune system are likely the, the onset. Um, I, I have uh, the unfortunate experience of actually kind of seeing neurology. I've been immersed in it for so long. Uh, I don't know if you know who Anna Weiss was. Uh, Anna did EEG work, but um, uh, she did guided meditation based on EEG, not neurofeedback, but guided meditation. And watching her walk, I could tell she had a motor neuron disease. And it was five years before they could identify the lesions with an MRI. So, uh, um, yeah, when you tell a friend, gee, I think you should go see a neurologist because I think you have MS or a demyelinating disease uh, and it's five years early, uh, uh, it would have been nice to have about four years of benign, you know, ignorance about it. But, um, uh, you know, there's not really much that 
can be done. Uh, there are uh, treatments with um, uh, beta seron and interferon, basically. Uh, however, not everybody has positive outcomes with that. Uh, the, the single interferon treatment with Anna uh, just about killed her because she had a prior uh, heart problem and her immune system essentially attacked her heart at that point, uh, putting her into a coma. Um, anyway, it's, it, it, uh, uh, inflammatory changes uh, can end up with autoimmune problems and, and infl- inflammation very commonly comes from toxins. And I'll just throw in the, you know, the, the gut-brain axis where you, you have, you know, whether it's a you know, virus, a bacteria, fungus, or just a part of a virus, bacteria, fungus, or other toxins, that are able to make it across the gut lining and then across the blood brain barrier. Um, I, I think there's uh, a, certainly a, 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 you know, a big appreciation of this happening right now with COVID and looking at the amount of neurologic uh, side effects supply from a COVID infection and just a renewed appreciation for, well, our general understanding that the blood brain barrier kept the brain safe and then seeing like, yeah, that's not really so true. And uh, how many viruses really are able to cross and then create an immune effect within the brain. So this is, a, you know, one category causes is this, this side kind of a, you know, this isn't all that different than toxic, but, but it is categorized differently when it is biological uh, entity that crosses, you know, naturally occurring that crosses and triggers an immune response versus say heavy metals or pesticides or something of that nature. I I appreciate your somatic approach to psychophysiology. I mean, we are uh, kind of an embodied presence um, and being embodied, we're not a disembodied brain, that's for damn sure. And the the interaction between body and brain uh, have historically been kind of underappreciated by the neurofeedback community. Uh, again, you, you, you know, the reintegration with heart rate variability showing you know, a heart and brain interactions and the heartbeat can actually trigger event related potentials in the brain uh, that, you know, the, the reintegration of us into an a, a more complete entity ends up giving us a, a richer approach to uh, interventions as well. So I, I appreciate your somatic approach. When our you know the clinical situation allows, um, we our preferred approach is you know full nineteen channel cap plus full ten channel biofeedback setup so that we're monitoring you know nineteen channels of EEG and uh, the autonomic nervous system, same time, the, the inner relationship between the body and how often the body is really driving the anomaly in the EEG and addressing say heart rate variability turns out to be the better intervention than training the 19 channel Loretta. There's lots of approaches in neurofeedback. Some of them are one channel approaches or two channel approaches. Some of them are 19 channel with calculated Z scores or uh, connectivity measures. Um, uh, can you kind of describe your uh, uh, clinic's approach to neurofeedback, which, which I, I'd, I'd call them camps, but 
they're a little bit more religious, I think, than just a camp. It's like the church of this and a church of that, uh, because it's a really strongly held belief system within the groups. Uh, can you describe kind of your orientation in that? The, our clinic, we we feel like we're um, kind of outliers in the neurofeedback field because we tend to um, not choose a camp. So we do um, we do 19 channels e-score training, but we also do one and two channel um, uh, and four channel um, amplitude training. Um, we we don't stick with one system. We have you know we have Nexus, but we now have Neurofield as well. And um, we just um, I think it's part of what I. I is kind of foundational to um, our brain health clinic is that we um, we tend not to kind of be um, pigeonholed in the way that we approach um, uh, the work that we do um, with clients. And so it fits for us to just sort of um, kind of use which approach seems like the more appropriate approach for what, who is um, sitting in the chair in front of us. And so um, we actually uh, um, find ourselves um, not like not being able to put ourselves in one of those camps that you, you just mentioned, um, Jay. And I do think that um, it is, um, I remember um, uh, my first ISNR um, conference that I went to a few years ago and getting such a clear sense of the fact that there are those camps. Um, and I remember um, at the time thinking, because as a psychologist, I had, we have camps in the field of psychology, you know, um, your cognitive behavioral or your somatic or, you know, um, your Adlerian or psychodynamic. And, and that's always bothered me that, you know, there has to be that one choice. And then I was a bit disappointed when I went to ISNR and I was like, oh, that's right. It's human beings here. So we're going to camp up. We're going to tribe up. Right. Um, but it is um, for me, um, it is refreshing to be able to not feel that we have to be contained within one philosophical bent. It just feels like it opens up more possibilities for providing treatment for or training for um, clients that will end up giving them kind of the best that we can, right? And what might work best for them. Um, but there's also that, um, you know, when you're not in a camp, you feel like you're not in the camp. And so that's always a bit of a challenge as well, which is why um, I appreciate that, that, you know, this isn't a, like, I'm not doing this all by myself, that I have, you know, other, we have other people in, in our clinic in this, you know, the camp of not being in a camp. Um, but I, I think the, the point for me about all of that, that's most important is that it, it does like, it allows us to really continue to consider what is the best line of treatment or, or training? What's the best approach for each individual that we see in our clinic? It does allow you to cherry pick out of the Whitman sampler of various approaches, which one yes. matches best to your client. And not everybody likes that maple, you know, sometimes the nuts are better. <laughs> yes. and, you know, um, being able to match up uh, is, I think, really quite ideal. I'm wired this way, you know, kind of, yeah. you know, being the, the integrative person that I am and having that as a, a guiding conception. Um, I will say 
one, or just as a practitioner, it, it brings its own challenges of like in our room, we have, we have um, split, uh, we have a main neurofeedback room, two setups in it. So we could be training two people at the same time. And you could be on one side running Nexus and NeuroGuide and network training um, in you know, that whole paradigm and then step over on the other side and be doing a neurofield and amplitude training, like more of an like event related potential type of paradigm over against network. One being, you know, kind of running on an FFT Fourier transform methodology and the other running on a Granger causation platform and and, and, and to be able to switch your brain from paradigm to paradigm, um, that's its own challenge as a clinician. Your whole rationale for what you're doing and the treatment and what's happening, you have to just shift. The other side of it that is interesting is, is talking with clients about this, you know, because, you know, they, they don't have all, and, and nor would we want them to have in their mind, all that we have in ours about the, the paradigm but yet they ask questions and you're like, well, okay, I'm going to answer your question this way because you're on this side of the room. But next week, you're going to be on the other side of the room. And the answer to that same question is going to be different. Also, just explaining to people about their treatment plan. Mostly what I see is, you know, clients eyes glaze over uh, because the options are so many that they can't, they, they can't hang with it. Um, it. It definitely seems easier to say, we do one thing. This is all we do. If you come here, this is what you get versus we do 18 things and I'm going to explain to you why you're going to get this mix of them. Yeah. So we appreciate the model, but it, it has this component to it that makes it challenging. Fran and Guy, do you mind talking about your philosophy at your clinic uh, in regards to behaviors and brain function? And that's a maybe roundabout way of talking about, hey, the DSM doesn't always fit for everything. It describes, you know, observable behaviors, which aren't necessarily tied to neurological functioning. And as our mentor, Laura and I's mentor used to say, all ADHD ain't the same thing, right? So do you guys mind talking about that? And, and Jay and Laura jump in too, of course. It's, it's DSM bashing time. <laughs> Yippee. <laughs> it's, it's not a matter of if, it's when it comes yes. up. So. So I will say like, uh, um, my, so my, my students would have said to you, Skip, do not get her going um, because <laughs> this topic is kind of near and dear to my heart because I think that there's a lot of, di while, while the intention of the DSM is, was <laughs> perhaps, you know, honorable, um, there's a lot of damage that happens with the sure. two because I think that both uh, clinicians and the lay public, right, um, use the DSM as the Bible. And if it says it in the Bible, it is so, right? And it just simply is human being is so absolutely unique that you're right. Um, one person's ADHD is not going to look like another person's ADHD in terms of what's actually going on. Now, from a behavioral standpoint, perhaps, you know, every, you know, this group of kids all look like they're impulsive. They can't sit still. They blurt things out. They can't focus, that kind of thing. So we put them in that label. One of my biggest frustrations with the DSM, uh, most 
most recently was when when the latest the DSM-5 came out in 2013 they had prepared us for this move to kind of more of a dimensional approach I don't know if any of you recall that but um, you know I remember spending hours and hours of prepping coursework for my abnormal psych students to teach them this new approach and I was super excited about the idea of finally being able to say see what I've been talking with you about being on a continuum that's you know what we're doing with it too and then you know in the midnight hour the DSM came out and it the only thing that was close in there is autism spectrum right but we were supposed to have the whole set of personality disorders be on a continuum, you know, on a dimensional approach, and none of that happened. Um, and so I do think that um, I, I know that I spend a lot of time both in my my psychotherapy practice, but certainly in my neurofeedback practice, educating clients or uneducating them about the DSM because they come in with this idea of even like when you do a QEEG on them, they want you to say, well, does this say then that I do have ADHD or that I do have, you know, um, anxiety or bipolar disorder. And um, so just kind of educating them in the direction of considering um, the like what we're doing with neurofeedback is really looking at the fun as you said skip the functionality of the brain and that it's the functionality that is going to have some kind of impact on what they're going to experience you know on a regular basis and so we you know I, I work a lot with clients training them to not think that they are training away their ADHD or something like that, right? That we are just really training the brain. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I, I think that um, the DSM is creates a challenge. Now, you know, it, it serves a purpose at times. Um, it's always good to know if you go into a library and you want to find um, books on uh, travel that you, the travel sections over here, right? But then if you're looking to go to South Korea, you, you know, you don't want to be in the Britain section, right? that kind of thing. And so I think that's where the DSM kind of falls apart is it sends you into one category and this leaves you pigeonholed there. Um, and in, it's been one of the most refreshing things that I've been able to do is to come into working in neurofeedback because it just has this way of we can naturally talk about like the functionality of the brain and people don't have to get all hooked up in like the psychodynamics of things or you know the family history that that is causing this well that may be a contributing factor it isn't what we're doing with neurofeedback and there's something for me that's been um, in to come into this, I think I was in my 20th year of, of practice when I came into neurofeedback. It's been probably the most refreshing um, part of coming back into doing clinical practice has been being able to, to pull this, this model of, you know, kind of looking at functionality as opposed to just looking at a set of symptom behaviors. Well, I have to say that, um, your accent from Minnesota almost <laughs> is like a Canadian. And you know how nice Canadians are. Yeah. So uh, um, you, you've got that Canadian Minnesota niceness. <laughs> I, I, your discussion of the DSM was uh, very, very good, but also very gentle. 
uh, I'll put away my spiked hammer here because that's what I would use um, uh, and, and let uh, other folks uh, uh, chat about the DSM as well. Uh, I, I do appreciate the research domain criteria. Uh, we, we published our first uh, research domain criteria paper in 2015 on beta spindles in the EEG corresponding with insomnia, independent of the other psychiatric DSM categories the the largest correspondence was with insomnia anyway um uh, i'll let other people feel free to bash away uh one of my favorite things to pick on jay i'm I'm guessing you would agree with me that it makes a really good doorstop uh it it keeps the outhouse from being tipped over on 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 halloween you know yeah, it's, a, <laughs> it's a it's a good counterweight, you know. Yes, yeah. So I, I I guess I could get behind it a little more if there was an actual diagnosis in the DSM about not being able to think outside of the DSM. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like, what do we call that? Like, let's look at uh, <laughs> that's the normal category they don't have. <laughs> right. Yeah. We get all all out of our system. All right. <laughs> <laughs> For this week. I feel like we need to have an after party now to, to really get into this. <laughs> oh, yes. That'll be the next time we bring you guys on. We're doing this again. <laughs> Guy and Fran, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a delight. Thank you for having us. Yes. What's it? What? What's the best way for uh, somebody in Minnesota to get a hold of you? Is it the BaktiClinic dot com? Did I get it right? Yes. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay good. <laughs> Sounded like a native there for a moment. You got to have a couple lilts in the middle, Minnesota. Minnesota. You know, you have to have the uplift at the the little lilt at the end of the words in Minnesota. You know, it has to have to go up a little bit there. But uh, you, you you almost you almost pass for a native. I'll, I'll have Dr. Laura adjust my protocols. Uh, so, so com, right guys? You're absolutely right. BaktiClinic.com is, is the best place to find us. We keep our emails, phone numbers are on the site. Um, everything you need there. And I'll, and I'll put a link on the podcast, uh, on the, on the show notes. So everybody can uh, check it out. Okay. We thank you all for listening to NeuroNoodles, Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology Podcast. Dr. Laura can be found at Jansons.com. Dr. Skip can be found at DrSkipRin.com. And Jay Gunkelman, again, well, there's only one Jay Gunkelman on Google. If you have an idea for a topic, please email me, Pete at NeuroNoodle.com. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Smash that like button on Facebook, Instagram, and follow us on Twitter. They can't hear us. We can't help them. Thank you guys so much. Cue the non-copyrighted music.